Welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Vitreo. We bring you free-flowing conversations with top thought leaders in philanthropy and the nonprofit sector. Sit back, relax, listen and enjoy as we share ideas and discuss topics that are important, timely, and we hope will transform the nonprofit world. Hello, and welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Vitreo. This is episode 38, and it was recorded on Thursday, April the 9th, 2020. I'm Vincent Duckworth. I'm a fundraiser and a partner with Vitreo Group. We are a national agency focused on bold leadership and transformative fundraising. This is our fifth episode of 2020. We are joined by Kay Sprinkle Grace, AFP Global's Fundraiser of the Year, Tom Ahern, one of the world's most sought after creators of fundraising messages, Angela Chapman, President and CEO of the Vancouver General Hospital and the University of British Columbia Hospital Foundation, and Ken Mayhew, President and CEO of the William Osler Health System Foundation in Toronto. Our topic, fundraising in the time of COVID-19. The WHO declared COVID-19 a pandemic on March 11th. Since then, we have seen nations across the globe close their borders. All large-scale events have been canceled. Millions of school children and university students are finishing their school year at home. Many world cities are on lockdown and much of the world is working from home. Simply put, this is the single largest human behavior movement in history. It is truly extraordinary. These are unprecedented times for this podcast, for our institutions, and for all of us. Today, in a special out-of-sequence episode, we are focusing our attention and our conversation on fundraising in the time of COVID-19. Theaters are dark, recreation centers are shuttered, universities are closed. And as a counterpoint, our food banks, our shelters, and our hospital foundations have become literally the center of the nonprofit universe. Join us as we discuss one of the most important impacts on fundraising in recent memory. It's time for the Brain Trust Philanthropy Podcast. Welcome to episode 38 of Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Betrayal. This is our fifth episode of 2020. Our topic, fundraising in the time of COVID-19. This is a special episode. It was not originally on our roster, but these are extraordinary times. And when in extraordinary times, you do extraordinary things. The coronavirus has had an unprecedented impact on our world, and this impact is particularly felt in the nonprofit sector. We've asked four of the continent's top nonprofit leaders to join us today. It really is a dream team. And we are so thankful that you have all made yourself available during this very busy time. I know you're excited to be here. I'm excited to be here. Let's get started. First, joining us from San Francisco, we have Kay Sprinkle Grace. Kay has devoted the last 30 years to the nonprofit sector. And last month, in addition to the many honors she has received over her career, Kay received the Fundraising Professional of the Year Award from AFP Global at their international conference in Baltimore. You might recall that was a virtual conference. If you did not catch her interview with Alice Ferris, you need to go find it and watch it. It's beyond terrific. Kay, it's a real ha- honor to have you join us. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. I have met Kay, but I don't know Kay. One of our other guests, Tom Hearn, who I'll introduce shortly, and my business partner, Andrea McManus, know Kay very well. I'm so glad to have this small chance to get to know you better, Kay. I know you have been sheltering in place in San Francisco for a few weeks. I believe San Francisco was one of the first jurisdictions in North America to issue self-isolation orders, so we're so grateful you did that. Now, I know from our pre-show chat that you have not been idle during this time. In addition to the many Zoom calls and webinars you've been, part, been a participant in, you've also been taking a creative writing class at your alma mater, Stanford. Before we get into today's topic, can you share with us a bit about what inspired you to take this course now, and how's it going? Well, thank you. Um, I am... So excited to be taking this course. It's something I've been wanting to do. And yet, for me to put together nine weeks, you know, nine sessions of a class, it was very daunting because I have a terrific travel schedule. Well, guess what? I don't have a terrific (laughs) travel schedule anymore. (laughs) And so, in fact, I was supposed to leave for Europe tomorrow for four and a half weeks. And speaking at the German fundraising conference and doing a river trip and all those things. So I looked at the Stanford Continuing Studies catalog, and here was this creative writing class. What I loved about it and what I'm loving about it is that 
I have written, you know, seven or eight books that are strictly nonfiction boards, fundraising. But in my heart and in my head, I have been carrying around a book about my father. And my father was in World War II. He was in the Normandy invasion. He and my mother were married, but he met an English woman there. And she was in his life forever. And my mother and she knew each other, and I knew her, and you know, I know her children. And I have been trying to write this book, and now, you know what? I'm writing it. And it is so exciting because I've gone through mountains of research that I had, both on, on D-Day, Normandy, but also their letters. They They saved their letters. So her daughter had my father's letters to her, I have her letters to my father, and we have been putting this together long distance because the daughter lives in England. So it's very exciting. And I find that this creative outlet, a once a week class for three hours, plus the work we do in between, has been, I think it's helped me stay on balance during love in the time of cholera. So thank you for asking. Well, thank you, Kay. I had no idea where you were going to go with that. And uh, there's just so many touch points. Uh, that's a whole other podcast. Uh, my grandmother was a river <laughs> ride. I'm, I'm thinking about writing a story about her. There's a lot of similarities, but that's for another podcast. So thank you for sharing that with us. And thank you for letting folks know that that was something that's helping you keep uh, your, your stability and, and uh, yeah. dare I say, sanity during this time. So thank you for that. Um, uh, next, Welcome. joining us from further up the West Coast is in Vancouver, B.C., we have Angela Chapman. Uh, Angela is the president and CEO of the Vancouver General Hospital and the University of British Columbia Hospital Foundation. Angela has been on a podcast before, but this is her first visit to our podcast. So, Angela, welcome to the Brain Trust Philanthropy Podcast. Thanks, Vincent. Delight- delighted to be here. Angela is a board member with AFP Canada, and I am a board member with the AFP Foundation for Philanthropy Canada. We've gotten to know each other from our work on national issues that impact the sector, and we're getting to know each other a lot better now through these other things that we're doing. But Angela, before we dive into today's topic, I know that you've been CEO of one of Canada's largest healthcare foundations for just over 90 days, quite the trial by fire. Healthcare is in the front lines of the global health crisis. I'm wondering if you can share with us a bit about what that's been like and, and the shift your organization has had to make in the recent weeks. Yeah, it's, it has been an incredible time. Um, I might partner up with uh, Kay in the future because I think there's a book in this called The First 90 Days, The Global Pandemic Version. It's been quite an intense time. I'm, I'm very grateful for the fact that I had actually been with the foundation already six and a half years before I started, because I can't imagine being a new CEO to a new organization uh, through this time. Uh, it, 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 would be, it, would be, it would make it more challenging, partly because what's so important in this time is being able to pivot very quickly. And when you know you're your partners that you're working with, the, the healthcare partners you're working with, and when you know your staff, you're able to do that in a in a much more efficient way. So I'm very happy for that. I've had some very good advice about really focusing on and thinking about what your own mission for your organization as the CEO is. And I keep on coming back to that. The thoughts around teamwork, around collaboration, around anticipating our partners and our donors' needs. And also about the, the, the focus on people, values, and strategy. So I think that's kind of keeping me grounded in this moment. It's been intense. It's been uh, a whirlwind. And we feel like in BC, we're starting to bend that curve. And in some ways, the pace is starting to bend as well for our transition. Uh, but it's still pretty intense, and everybody's working very hard. Thanks for that, Angela. When we spoke the other day, you shared with me a very profound and powerful statement. I don't know if you knew how profound and powerful it was, but you said, you know, one of the things you've you've kind of noticed is that your organization, which was a healthcare organization, had shifted to becoming a, and I don't want to fill in the blank. I wonder if you want to share with me what, do you remember what we talked about? The language you used? Yeah, and that that is that, that goes to the point I was making before about how quickly we've had to shift. 
we, we feel less like a healthcare foundation in some ways, although clearly our focus is still healthcare, but it feels like a humanitarian aid organization in many respects. Parts of our business we've had to shift to receiving supplies on behalf of the, of the hospital and taking them to the right place. Uh, matching up food delivery into to support our healthcare workers, things that aren't necessarily hitting our bottom line as a foundation, but are absolutely critical to delivering on our mission in this moment. Thanks for sharing that, Angela. I'm, I'm glad you were able to share that shifting from a healthcare organization to uh, a lot of lot of the framework of a humanitarian organization. So that's really powerful. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Um, Joining us from across the continent on Rhode Island, also working at home, we have Tom Ahern. The New York Times called Tom one of America's most sought-after creators of fundraising messages. They're not wrong. We've had clients work with Tom, and they've always been delighted. Welcome to the show, Tom. Well, thank you, Vincent. <laughs> Tom and I have met a number of times, but I don't know him as well as I know his life partner, Simone Joyot. Joya, Joya, I can't say her name properly. You have to correct that, Tom, um, who's been also been on our podcast. I'm delighted to get to know you better. Um, we're going to hear some very interesting things from you related to today's topic. But before we get to that, in the pre-show, you said that you've just been talking to a client who had some very interesting things to say. Do you want to sort of share those with us? Yeah, it's because it, it's every day there's new stuff coming in, and one of the job my self-assigned jobs is kind of rake through and see what's happening and, you know, synthesize it. Um, and uh, so a client, we, I was talking to the CEO of uh, USA for UNHCR, which is a woman named Anne Marie Gray. And mm -hmm. uh, she had just come back from uh, a trip to Bangladesh. So she may have been the last person off an airplane. And it, they were, uh, her and her team were there visiting the Rohingya uh, refugee camps, which are not yet hit by the coronavirus, but will be. And the situation there is just going to be uh, dramatically different than it is. I mean, we're, we're struggling in our Western world to, uh, to deal with the pace of this. They don't have any infrastructure there for medical care and so forth. And the people who are saving the day, at least at this point, are young women who not particularly, they didn't go to school to become nurses or doctors, but they have stepped up and they've gotten a little bit of training and they're doing some very good work there. Um, it's it's an interesting time. I mean, as, uh, as Anne-Marie pointed out, we have, she said, 70.5 million refugees right now, and that's an incredible incredible holy cow yeah I, I need to fact check it but that is what came out of her mouth this morning um so uh it's an interesting times what she was telling me though was that uh they are doing a little pivot at um unhcr where they're being donor uh supportive right now and usually the donors are supporting them now they're supporting the donors and they have a uh, uh, crisis hotline team set up where if you're a monthly donor, you can call in and they'll offer you a couple of options. You're probably calling to cancel because you've lost your job and you're canceling everything. But you can uh, either go on a holiday, what they call a holiday, uh, for your monthly giving, or you can lower your amount um, if you want, or of course you can cancel. The other thing she said, which is very relevant to these times, is um, that the writing of wills is soaring. Now, in the, <laughs> in the United States, I've always had a will. Simone and I have had one since we got married, and you know, so we're we're uh, 30 years into our will, um, and we kind of forget that maybe about 40% of the population does not have a will, even uh, people of wealth sometimes die intestate. And so uh, it is interesting that lawyers, are the, the phone is ringing off the hook. I need a will. I need a will. I need a will. Wow. Well, thanks for that reminder about the fact that, you know, there are tough times in North America, but there are folks in the world who are not uh, even in the situation that we are in with our, our 21st century health care. So thank you for reminding us about the plight of refugees and I have heard that thing about wills. I hope we circle back to that in the in the call. 
Um, I want to introduce our last guest. Thanks, Tom, for that. Finally, from Toronto, we're joined by Ken Mayhew. Like Angela, Ken leads one of Canada's largest healthcare foundations. He is the president and CEO of the William Osler Health System Foundation. Ken has not been on our podcast before, but he tells me that he listens to them all and loves them. As it turns out, uh, though, he will not only be joining us today, but he's joining us uh, next week when he's being a guest on our, our uh, healthcare philanthropy. Uh, so, Ken, thanks for taking the time and welcome to our podcast. Thank you, Vincent. Glad to be here. Ken and I have known each other for a long time. Along with Angela, in addition to our day jobs, we have and continue to serve the profession as volunteers for AFP. Ken is currently chair-elect of AFP Canada. Ken, we're going to hear about your thoughts on how COVID-19 is affecting the sector in a few minutes. But just before that, I'm wondering if you could share some of your thoughts on how this might affect our professional association, AFP. Yeah, thank you, Vincent. I appreciate the opportunity, and uh, I'm glad to talk about this instead of my family background, which is pretty boring compared to Kay's, I have to admit. Uh, so, yeah, you know, AFP, um, Association of Fundraising Professionals, is sort of the entity that seeks to um, assist those who are fundraising professionals. And we're heading into a time, obviously, as we're going to talk about today, that with the AFP Foundation, with AFP Global, we're going to have to be relevant to our members, right? The same sort of things that we're facing in our day jobs, uh, we're going to have to face as a member-supported entity. And we're going to do that in two ways. The first one is we're going to be working on the Government Relations Fund with governments. Clearly, uh, governments are not going to be able to fill the gap in terms of what's happened in this new reality. And then secondly, we're going to be, um, and that's going to be a coordinated response, right? We'll have to create a movement such that governments are able to effectively support nonprofits' abilities to fund themselves. And obviously, in that context, not the whole story are fundraisers, but a big part of that story. And what can we do to support that for the causes that matter and the people who make the difference as philanthropists? And the second thing we're going to do is we're going to support those within the profession. So, you know, many of us who do this work, it's personal work. We're called to serve. So because we're facing something that's both invisible and global and unpredictable, there's going to be a huge amount of change and there's going to be people who are, um, you know, feel overwhelmed. And I think that AFP has a role, as it always has, as kind of a facilitator, a networker, um, a place to find a mentor or, or, and I'm sure everybody on the call, you know, I'm taking calls every single day from people who just need 10 minutes to talk about what's going on and so that they... They don't feel that they walk alone through all of this. So I can see AFP having a great role to play with that, to just sort of, you know, to, to help us sort of ensure that we remain focused. Uh, I think, as, as Angela said, that we pivot and triage, but that we also, you know, keep the faith. The importance of what we do will be greater now than ever before. Uh, so I, I'll be privileged to be working with folks like you, Vincent, and others to um, – do what we can to make sure AFP can be there for people when they need it. Thank you, Ken. That's a very um, uh, uplifting message, I would suggest. And thank you for, for, for being such a strong leader in AFP. Also, thanks for being a great role model in the, um, the health professions. Uh, the folks on the podcast, of course, you'll be hearing this. You won't see it, but I'm able to see uh, our guests on video. And, and earlier in the pre-show, Ken had to cough. And he, uh, he, of course, put his elbow up and coughed into his elbow, which is actually a, a, a nice modeling behavior. Will you be washing your hands during the show as well, Ken? Just to, uh, just to keep yeah. us on track? Constantly, right. Thank you so actually, much. Constantly. <laughs> okay. Okay. Let's get started. Thank you all for joining us on this, our 38th podcast. Our topic, fundraising in the time of COVID-19. The WHO declared COVID-19 a pandemic on March 11th. We are recording today's podcast on Thursday, April 9th. Over the last four weeks, we have been witness to the largest human behavior change in history. We have seen nations across the globe close their borders. All large-scale events have been canceled. Millions of school children and university students are finishing their school year at home. Many world cities are on lockdown, and much of the world is working from home. It is truly extraordinary. As of this recording, there have been 1.5 million coronavirus cases uh, there were just under 250,000 when I was recording our last podcast on March 19th, and sadly, there have been over 90,000 deaths. Uh, I'm repeating this quote from our last podcast because it bears repeating. 
Here's a quote from the March 7th article by Axios. Quote, this year is just over three months old, but we have every reason to believe that COVID-19 will be one of the most significant events of the decade, if not beyond, end quote. These are truly unprecedented times for the world, for the nonprofit sector, for us, and even for this podcast. This is our first out-of-sequence podcast in importance. Today, our topic focuses on fundraising, most particularly fundraising in the time of COVID-19. In Canada, it is estimated that the nonprofit sector stands to lose more than $11 billion as a direct result of the coronavirus pandemic. In the United States, it is likely to be 10 times this amount or more. Um, many organizations are facing unparalleled and multifaceted challenges. Theaters are dark. Our recreation and wellness facilities are shuttered. Universities and colleges are closed. At the same time, the work of our food banks, our women's shelters, and our healthcare institutions has become literally a matter of life and death. Tom, we're going to start with you. Your advice has been sought by many in the last few weeks, and we know in the many years before that. What are you hearing? What are you thinking? And what advice do you have for the sector? Well, yes, you're right, Vincent. Uh, people uh, are getting in touch, and some of them are uh, wondering, should we even fundraise uh, at this point in time? And is the world so terrified that we would be a nuisance? And uh, the answer to that, well, as any fundraiser probably would guess, is, uh, yeah, you should, you should be fundraising right now. And um, there, are re there are reasons for that. Uh, it isn't just because we can't um, adjust our behaviors to this crisis, but uh, it's a great time to be hustling. Um, the, not everybody's going to be able to respond, of course, because we are, we're aiming down here in the United States at something like 20% unemployment uh, soon, if not already, and that isn't uh, predicted to go down to uh, anything lower than 10% by Christmas, which is going to be a disaster. Uh, however, the uh, the people who are not um, terrified, <laughs> and that uh, often are the uh, donors who are in their older years. So we know that about half of the donors in the United States and in Canada, for that matter, um, are people 65 and older. And a lot of those people, not all, but a lot of those people are comfortable financially. They're, they've worked on that their entire life, and now they have retired, and they are fine. And those people are not going to stop giving. They see no reason to. Now, I, I, that is not my invention. Uh, that is based on research that was done and, and published just two days ago by Mark Phillips, Blue Frog, over in London. And uh, Blue Frog has been actively surveying donors uh, during this crisis to see, you know, where the attitudes are headed. And one of the things uh, that Mark drew from his research, uh, and I'm quoting here, if donors are not worried about their finances, they see no reason why they should stop supporting the charities that they normally give to. Uh, furthermore, if they are asked for even additional help, what they prefer to give to in that additional way is to uh, anything that is related to this crisis. So you have things like a um, uh, an emergency email appeal that you might want to send out, and there's a template that was put together by... Uh, the Better Fundraising Company, which is based in Seattle, it's Stephen Screen and uh, Jim Shapiro, and they're both um, uh, alumni of the uh, Domain Group, which is one of the great fundraising agencies. And they have a, a, not, a how many points? Eight point, eight point uh, a template. You just write right over the template. In fact, you can steal pretty much the whole template and just kind of plug in your stuff, your details. And this template is being used around the world to raise money. And I, I talked to a, a charity down in San Antonio just the other day who had used the template and in 24 hours raised over uh, about $11,000, which was half of their $22,000 goal. They were 
it's a senior living place. They wanted to, uh, because of the isolation imposed on people by this crisis, they wanted to bring in higher speed internet to all of the people in their two facilities, and that was a $22,000 uh, bill. And donors, you know, paid for half of it in 24 hours, and then they brought that around to their major givers, and they're going to fill in the rest of it. So it's the right time for uh, a lot of your base, not for all of your base, but for a lot of your base. Yeah, it's it's a good time, and 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 other things are happening too. You know, we. Uh, I was at a um, conference for the Volunteers of America, and uh, it was a national conference. And one of the questions that a speaker had was, uh, raise your hands if you've raised more money this year than last year. And uh, a bunch of hands went up. And she asked one of these groups, well, what, what happened? And they said, well, uh, a hurricane happened, and we had to cancel our event. And they raised more money from uh, emergency uh, funding that came in. <coughs> thanks to the hurricane, then they would have raised, in fact, they were kind of happy to be rid of the event. And then uh, I, I started doing some research, and um, Bloomerang, which is a, a customer relationship management, a donor relationship management uh, group, they have about six, seven, 8,000 clients. It's a huge uh, base of information. And they've been collecting success stories during this crisis. And uh, I, they have on their website a couple where basically people canceled their event and made more money using uh, some form of e-outreach to their base. And uh, it, it, for particularly for local charities, uh, one of them was an education foundation that serves uh, at-risk kids in high school. Another one was a, uh, a place in Tacoma called the Peace Community Center, which also does a lot of education programming. They had these big annual events where they'd make $100,000. And to lose that event, it was just horrifying until they took advantage of uh, the fact that people really did love them. After all, they, they canceled in uh, the the Education Foundation canceled an event that had been run for 27 years and was their big annual fundraiser. And they went out to the very same people and said, we can't do it this year, obviously. And so we're going to, you know, we're going to provide you a little programming. It's kind of a, a virtual event. And then the day of uh, was kind of the deadline. And in the years past, they had cleared uh, net after expenses about seventy thousand this year because they really didn't have any expenses, none of the rental of the hall and all the rest of that. They cleared over a hundred thousand. So you know, th these are two examples of how people are they're they're flexible enough to say, is there another way to do this? Right. So I heard hustle, heard events okay. being canceled are not the end of the world. Yeah, well, there's a third thing. Um, you know, I, I talked to a, a consultant I admire, a woman named um, Amy Vance. She's down in Tennessee, and uh, she's very good at her work. And she's, she, like me, she does a lot of communications work. And um, she said right now her advice to her clients is, this you 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 need to talk with empathy, with transparency, with vulnerability, and with boldness. And uh, you know, I was listening to Amy recite these. And we should get to the last one, boldness. And I said, well, there's the problem because uh, nonprofits don't communicate with boldness. In fact, if anything, they go the other direction and try to offend absolutely no one. No one. Which means everything. It's not bold. It's bland. It's intentionally bland. And uh, I was speaking to um, uh, the executive director of United Way down south, and she said, you know, we sent out our email. We, we, made, we brought in a ton of money, but I also uh, had somebody, a donor, uh, call me up and, and cuss me out, she said. <laughs> and, uh, and the answer to that is, look, if you're not getting complaints, 
your stuff is probably too bland to survive in the marketplace. So the marketplace being every day all of us are inundated with messaging. I mean, thousands and thousands of messages trying to get our limited disposable attention span. And in order for a charity to break through that clutter, that noise, you, you really have to not be bland, not be predictable, not be the most boring thing that came in today. And but that's not that's not the DNA. That's a hard thing for a lot of charities to do. Tom, thanks for setting the stage. Now we've got tons to uh, to, to unplug from that. Kay, I'm wondering if you want to weigh in on uh, some of the things that either Tom talked about or some of the things that you're thinking about. Well, I, I want to just really agree with Tom is that, um, particularly on this last point about boldness, I, honestly, we are so timid. And I, I say to my clients, are you embarrassed about what you do? Um, are you apologetic? Um, is there something wrong with what you're doing? Well, no, but. And I think that what I am seeing, because my my clients run the spectrum uh, from domestic violence, food bank to arts organizations. And you've already defined, uh, Vincent, in starting us off, you've already defined that, that the differences among those are just huge right now. And yet the arts organizations have got to get bold. And last evening I was on a uh, development steering council call with the arts organization that I work most closely with. And I was really encouraged by... It's a very young, fresh committee. They're deeply into social media. They came up with some wonderful ideas. And they are bold. And I think that this is a very good posture to be taking. I was also encouraged yesterday. I was on the, the a webinar just as a participant, uh, not as a presenter. And listening to Kim Lawton, who runs uh, Schwab Charitable, and hearing what she says that they are advising their donors, which is to unlock the value of their charitable good by releasing more money from their donor-advised funds. And she even said that for small organizations who, for instance, can't, um, uh, can't process, um, say, securities and all of that, that, in fact, the donor advised funds can liquidate those assets and send the money directly to the organization. Um, the Silicon Valley Community Foundation, which is the largest in, in the U.S. in terms of assets, they are encouraging their donor advised fund holders to increase their, their push out of the money by 5%. March, the month of March, Year over year, they're ahead by 30%. So people are right. responding. So that gets back to the importance of not succumbing to the myth that we should not be fundraising. And the organizations I work with who have said, oh, we don't really think we should be fundraising. And I point to the fact that our food banks, the handling the money that's coming in, has just been huge in terms of their staff needing to be in place because these gifts are coming in. It's a very tangible, evident need, and the money is pouring in from people with huge hearts and who are so concerned about the high unemployment, people out of work, and people being hungry. There is money out there, and there are people willing to give. I wanted to pick up on something else that um, I don't know if it was you, Vincent, or you, Tom, said about traditional donors. I couldn't agree more. We have had, well, you can imagine the number of articles in Silicon Valley about billionaires who are not stepping up. Some are. Some are hugely stepping up. But some, when you consider how many billionaires there are in the Silicon Valley, some are being very, very quiet or giving anonymously, uh, the food bank here got a $250,000 gift that came in anonymously through a Schwab charitable account. So clearly that was somebody that preferred to remain anonymous. But the traditional donors, because they have this long view, and they have the long view of, of life and their communities, but here's where I think we 
can make a very strong case. And I made this case last night to kind of uncork the the conversation with this development steering committee. I said, at a time when the financial investment portfolio that people have, whether it's their checkbook or whether it's a vast portfolio being managed by someone, when they see it shriveling, how what an opportunity it is for us to show them that their social investment portfolio, whether it's into arts, culture, education, hunger, homelessness, whatever, that it is robust because those services are being provided thanks to the fact that they made that investment. And this was a message that we used very effectively during the recession. And I think it's something that we need to come back to, um, you know, at this time as well. Kay, I'm so glad that you brought up that social investment. That That is the piece um, that you spoke about when you and Alice uh, had that interview at ICON. And many, many people spoke to me. I didn't have a chance to see it live, but many people spoke to me about how powerful of a statement that was. So thank you for that. Uh, Ken, Angela, we've we've had the floor, the table set for us by two amazing leaders. Um, any thoughts, comments, uh, underscores that you want to throw in there? Um, which one of you wants to sort of start? I'll let Ken go first, my esteemed colleague. <laughs> I think that's called throwing you. him under the bus. <laughs> yeah, it has to be a virtual bus now. It's social distancing, right? So we're I, did, I didn't touch him. Thank you. No shaking hands. I'll find a way to thank you for that later on. Um, you know, I would say um, uh, inspired by hearing what uh, I just heard and feel some, certainly a lot of um, commonality, I, I would suggest I view it with a slightly different lens. It's probably because I'm a Canadian, so I am universally polite, but I think I can also be effective while being, you know, universally polite. And it may also be that because we are, frontline community hospitals. So we are sort of the, you know, I was telling Tom before the call, we're the first screening center in the province. So we're, uh, have to have a certain, I think a delicate touch just in terms of what we're doing. And we've been incredibly fortunate, very, very effective and successful year to date. And I'll talk about that uh, in a couple of minutes time, but just in terms of what I would suggest maybe as a slight nuance um i think people are drinking from a an emotional fire hose like i think people are just sort of you know a bit overwhelmed it's so universal and and uh so we're we really sort of have a big attitude about um you know make sure we're authentic and make sure that we're asking and and we're a very action-based group um but we're not we're not yelling at people we're not guilting people because we can't really imply that you know one specific need is necessarily more important than another specific need so we're trying to just action people to act just act lean in in a time like this and if you want to support community health that's great but we're doing a lot of things that aren't necessarily just about our shop we are passing opportunities over to somewhere else if we think they could use it better we're not accepting gifts of personal protective equipment if we think we have enough and somebody else needs more so I think there are opportunities beyond, and, and obviously this, I don't deal with the types of firms that that um, others do, so the, the lens through which I'm talking about this right now is relatively narrow. But I do think there are certain, you know, universalities that we're in such a time of uncertainty, people don't like uncertainty. So how can your contribution to the cause that matters most to you be demonstrated as a need and an impact rather than sort of a you know, a financial deficit, like not sort of a shortfall, trying to make it a bit more meaningful and um, perhaps that is stating things that are self-evident and self-obvious. I just can't see how any one cause, as you said off the front, uh, Vincent, you know, theaters are closed, right? Sports centers are all done. The, the girls' summer camp is gone for this year. I think it's going to be perhaps dif- difficult to dif- differentiate strictly on the basis of our unmet needs. I think rather the pivot could be to impact, and that's what we're trying to do. Thanks for that, Ken. I'm curious to hear, um, uh, I've, I, we heard from Tom and from Kay, and I've seen this too, that um, uh, there are people in our marketplace, there are donors in our market, there's people who have capacity 
and a desire to use that capacity where it's most needed right now. Have you seen that in your uh, in your in your organization in the last few weeks? Yeah, all over the place. And you know, Tom was was reading my board report during his opening remarks because we did have to cancel our big fundraising event of the year. We deal with um, a majority of people who self-declare as visible minorities, so we have people from all around the country, lots of people who are newer to the country and have sort of more modest means. So we have a South Asian gala called the Holy Festival of Colors, so we had to cancel it literally um, weeks before the event was supposed to happen. And once the dust settles, my prediction is on a net revenue basis, we'll be fine. And it's a big event. It's, it's, a, it's a lot of revenue. And I think what's, what I think what Tom is also very wisely pointing out is I actually think we'll be stronger with the event having been canceled because you're able to see those who are deeply committed to it. So they're doing their own personal fundraising pages or they're, you know, making donations to us in lieu of, of it being a sponsorship. So you can actually, it's helping us sort of distill uh, those who are interested in coming to a party from those for whom this is really the cause that matters most. We're seeing cases, um, Vincent, you know, where we're sending out something on social media like everybody else does on Twitter or we got one yesterday through WhatsApp. And then people who have not traditionally chosen to support us because we're not an academic center, we're a frontline healthcare center, are realizing the urgency and the size of the gifts that we're receiving, some from friends of ours, some from, you know, I told my board yesterday, I've been chasing these people for six years. And then they saw a little something in the paper, right, for six years. And they saw something in the little tiny community paper that we all assume that nobody reads papers. We all assume that nobody does it anymore. And it was that our board members had issued a $1 million Healthcare Heroes Challenge, which, and these numbers are all relative, so compared to Angela, my numbers are small, but compared to others, you know, our numbers are big. For us, that's a lot of money. That was a lot of money to try and go to market for. And the person saw the ad in the paper and uh, said, how much do you need? And I said, you know, here I am. I'm like downstairs with my daughter in the basement. I'm like, we're about halfway there. She said, okay. We'll wire transfer you five hundred thousand on Monday, and we had never received a gift from them, and we literally had been chasing them for years. So, I think Vincent, to your point, there's a lot of good coming out of this, and I think it's helping people. I think we were saying this as well before the call, redefine their own priorities a little bit, and that's good for the business that we're in, which is the business of helping. And uh, yeah, so it's it's both an uncertain time, you know, it's an alarming time, and it's also a a time of great opportunity because you don't need to try to prove impact. It's kind of can be a bit self-evident, right? Right. Thank you for that, Ken. Angela, uh, you, you don't get to dodge the last bullet. No, no, where do wanna, of course Where not. do you want to take it? <laughs> <laughs> thank, thank, thank you, Ken, for giving me that time to compose my thoughts on this. Um, and, and so well-spoken. And, and Ken has such incredible empathy and expresses things so well. I wanted him to speak before my, my calm, rational business like mine jumped in with the way that I'm going to express it. So, um, you know, I look at this with two lenses. One is kind of the immediate response. Uh, and, and I think of that as kind of the defensive line in this battle against COVID-19. And then the more long-term uh, response to it. And, and then we move into kind of the offense and then the recovery period. And Kay talks about um, demonstrating value. And in our in our business, uh, particularly as we have very long-term major gift donors, people more than half of our major gift donors have given to us for ten years or more. So we we know that in that part of our business, it's really a long-term game. And it's a marathon; it's not a sprint. So demonstrating the value to them, having conversations with them, checking in with them. That's also something that we're focusing on in terms of the long term. But in the immediate term, this opportunity uh, to fill a, a very necessary uh, need with our partners to help them prepare the defense, defend against uh, the onslaught, the, the surge in cases that we're expecting. Now, we're doing very well in BC, but that, that defense time is incredibly short and requires us to move very quickly. And we've had to be innovative. So to the points that both Kay and Tom were making around uh, activities that get canceled and thinking creatively about the way that you approach the community, 
again, because we have been so major gift focused, this was a real shift for us to a much more community engagement kind of approach and community messaging. So we've had to change very quickly. And I'm not sure we're all the way there really successfully yet in, in implementing it, but we're, we're trying very hard. Everybody's trying very hard. We have to cancel a golf tournament in June. Uh, and we're looking at ways that we can now do something virtually because, interestingly enough, the golf tournament was for the, the Prostate Cancer Center. But they do amazing research. They're one of the top three research centers in the world in prostate cancer. And they have this uh, um, artificial intelligence platform that matches cancer, potential cancer drugs, to an individual's uh, genetic uh, code to, uh, in order to personalize those, those uh, uh, oncological treatments. They've now applied that to potential treatments for COVID-19. And so they actually have a COVID-19 angle to the work that they're doing. So we're in lieu of the golf tournament. We're setting up a virtual town hall to expose all the people who unfortunately now we've had to uh, cancel the golf tournament, but they can see what good work is being done now to go to the offense against COVID-19. So there's, there, I think the real challenge, obviously we are at the front line and our connection to COVID-19 is very obvious, but for other charities out there, uh, they may have an obvious connection like the food bank, uh, serving um, the elderly population. There are many that have an obvious link. But when you talk about, for example, arts organizations are not necessarily having an obvious link to COVID-19. This is a real time to be creative. There, you know, that one has to sort of look uh, at the silver lining in this challenge. There's, a, there's an excellent opportunity to do new and different things and experiment and learn. That's a great setup for what I hope will close the show out. Thanks, Angela. Uh, Kay, when you and I talked um, as part of the pre-show, uh, we talked about maybe having a bit of a conversation about recovery. And I know that's hard for lots of people to think beyond the immediate, and especially for those that are at the front lines. But I'm wondering if you want to just uh, position our, our, our sort of last uh, uh, 10 minutes around uh, recovery. You don't have to talk for 10 minutes, Kay. You just have to set us up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when we talked yesterday, we talked about the long tail of this, and I do think that because this has been a global pandemic, we we feel that we have a lot of company because everywhere around the world, they're looking at this. And, and here's what I think. I think that when people talk about getting back to normal, I don't think there's going to be getting back to normal. Uh, I think we have, in many ways, altered um, our society. I think the behaviors have both revealed positive and negative aspects of what that kind of isolation means. I think that will dictate certain things. But here, here are my concerns. Um, I was talking with an arts organization with which I had not consulted since we finished their campaign uh, for a building, and they called yesterday. And they have had to cancel, the, it's a dance company, and they've had to cancel uh, the next two sets. But what they're worried about is that their big show, which is a Christmas, is kind of a, a, a nutcracker, uh, and their big show at Christmas, they are worried that their traditional audiences who are who trend older, they're not going to show up. And so there's that kind of concern from organizations that are normally gathering. But here's the point that I think is the most important. And I shared when Alice interviewed me um, uh, last a week ago, I shared that I'd had experience uh, in post-Katrina New Orleans. And what I saw there was both sad but heartening. And the sad part was that a lot of organizations just simply went under, a lot of nonprofits. But the heartening thing was, was that their mission survived. And the reason their mission survived was that they partnered, and Angela, you mentioned about partnering, that they partnered with other organizations. And in fact, in the example that I think is, is most well-known, they the AIDS organizations, eight of them, came together under the umbrella of the largest and healthiest of the AIDS organizations. They didn't lose any of the services, none. But they came together as one organization which was such a relief to donors who wanted to support research and, and food delivery and rehab and everything else. 
but they now had a single way to do this. What I hope we will be able to realize as we come out of this as nonprofits is that our mission isn't what we do, it's why we do what we do. It's the human or societal need that we are meeting, and we need to make sure that if that need is still critical, that we partner, we collaborate, we come together, and sadly, without regard (laughs) to maybe the organization being intact, maybe the organization isn't going to look the same. But as long as the mission is addressed, then I think we can continue to gain the kind of support that we are attracting right now. Well, Kay, thanks for the mic drop. That was awesome, right? I mean, that was uh, not 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 what we do, but why we do, and mission survives. So, Tom, no pressure. Can you top that? Well, I can't ever top Kay. Come on, but. <laughs> Kay is one of my thousand mentors, so no, I can't top that. But I, I, I can throw something on, a, on the the the, uh, the tail of it. Um, what the 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 thing I as a communications person, that's all I specialize in. I'm not really a fundraiser. I'm just a copywriter who got into fundraising. And um, what I've seen since I made the transition from the commercial world into the nonprofit world, is uh, how far behind the nonprofit world is in terms of uh, what you'd call uh, customer centricity and what we call donor centricity. And, you know, as a term was introduced by Penelope Burke back in the early two aughts. But the... um, the, I, I'm reviewing hundreds, maybe thousands of things a year, pieces of donor communications, presumably, um, and most of them are built to fail because they uh, they just do not have the right voice. Now, I was speaking to um, uh, Jen Chang, who's a psychologist, and her specialty is philanthropic behavior. She's over in uh, the UK, married to uh, uh, Professor Adrian Sargent. Sargent. Yeah. Adrian Sargent. Yeah. Yeah, and um, they've been doing research on this very area for uh, 15 years at least. And what she's saying is that this right now is a great time for charities to turn around and do something for their donors, for their supporters. So right now, and I'm reading from a list that Jen uh, came up with, she said, right now, your your supporters feel paralyzed, confined, victimized, disarmed, and powerless. Mm-hmm. But they could feel connected. They could feel cared for. They could feel listened to. They could feel part of a family. They could be feeling very strongly, we are doing good for others. Even if at the moment they don't have the financial means or they don't, they're a little bit timid about it financially, they you should go to them, thank them for all they've done in the past, and and say that has made us strong, and it, it is thanks to you. This is a great time for charities to finally put a human face on their fundraising, and it always happens in major gift work because you're having real human relationships with people. But the communication side of so much of what I see from the charity world is just it, it's it, it nobody would want it in their home so uh why do we expect them to to go you have to love me in order for me to love you and that's what jen is preaching and i think uh, this is the time for a lot of charities to say hey you know what let's try it that's phenomenal tom thanks i'm going to turn it over to ken or angela to uh, offer up their thoughts on recovery um and feel free to say uh, it's been said, and we can move on, or but add a layer if you have one. Angela, did you want have anything you wanted to offer around recovery? Yeah, I th- just one thing to follow up on what Tom said. You know, we have this notion in healthcare philanthropy of the grateful patient, and the idea we we talk to our physicians all the time about the fact that you know part of people's recovery, part of helping them recover, is that when they ask, "What can I do to help you?" That's the natural human instinct of reciprocity. People want to to, to give. Uh, to get back to help those who've helped them. 
Uh, it's a natural human instinct. It's, it's part of what makes us a strong community. And in moments like now, we're looking for that thing that binds us. People do want to do something. Tom said it. Kay said it. It's absolutely true. Let's, you're giving them an opportunity to do something now for them to be acting, uh, be a part of the solution. They can stay at home. We keep on telling them you can stay at home and you can help and you can also give. That's and great. Candy, uh, yeah. want to add to that? I think I would just add um, that one opportunity, I think, in addition to all of this, and I really was quite inspired by what uh, my co-presenters have recently said, is I think that, uh, you know, this might be the time as well for the more modest donor, right? I think certainly in the work that we've done, there has been this need, both need and also a, an incredible focus on just those transformational donors. Well, I think getting out of this probably is going to take a community, right? So to your point, Tom, uh, maybe some of those people who haven't gotten as much of our attention lately, we've been fixated on cost of fundraising, right, and things like that. So they haven't necessarily gotten the same amount of attention that that they perhaps deserve. And in this context, we need to ensure that they know that they're needed and appreciated as well. So that's just something that I would add. Thanks, Ken. That was terrific. And with that, I'm going to sort of draw our conversation today to a bit of a close. You guys have been fantastic guests. Um, we, we covered a lot of ground. It'd be hard for me to recap some of this, but you know, Kay, one of the things you talked about was at the end of Katrina, there was sadly some changes and also uh, upwardly some great uh, partnerships being formed. So in some ways, this is a bit of a charitable extinction event in a, in a, in a, in a good way. If we think about that, it gives people opportunities to events that they've been trying to get rid of for years and actually redo and think about something. Uh, you know, some of our charities are going to be on hosp in going into hospice. Uh, some of them are going to be on, in palliative care and some of them need to gracefully move off into the sunset and, and, and their missions though will survive. And so I want to thank all of you for, for being part of that conversation. I, uh, I wrote to our team today that I was a little intimidated about coming on this call today and I asked for them to wish me luck. You guys have been absolutely amazing. I'm going to give you each a platform before we go, but I want to thank you, uh, Angela, Ken, Tom, Kay. I hope you'll all come back sometime to our podcast and maybe we can do a post-COVID uh, podcast and talk about uh, what, what actually is happening. There. But before we go, I want to give each of you a chance to tell us a little more about what you're working on or where people can reach you or what, what you want to leave people with. Uh, uh, you, you kind of each get a final word. And Ken, I'm going to start with you. What do you want our audience to, uh, to, to, to leave this podcast thinking about or, or what do you want to talk about with respect to your work? You can talk about what you're doing at your hospital or anything else. What's on your mind? Uh, so first thing I want to do is that he can actually be succinct. So that's the first thing I'm going to try to do so that people can leave thinking that. So I would just say <laughs> briefly, you know, I think it's a time to lean in, as I said off the top, and and as my co-presenters have put it so eloquently, lots of worthy causes are in need of people who, uh, who are leaders and lead from where you stand. And that doesn't need to be the CEO of the organization. You can be somebody who is more junior to the profession, but we all have an opportunity to impact. Um, our campaign here is called Healthcare Heroes, hashtag Healthcare Heroes, or, you know, AFP Canada. We go through afpglobal.org to get through AFP Canada, but we're certainly going to need some strong people to help us come out the other side of this and make sure that the causes that we support are properly, um, you know, staffed and resourced. Uh, and then the last one I would just sort of say is anybody's interested, we have had quite a, um, successful campaign that anybody's welcome to use if it's of use to them and that would just be oslerfoundation.org forward slash COVID-19 so oslerfoundation O-S-L-E-R foundation.org forward slash COVID-19 uh, and imitation is the greatest form of flattery so if there's anything that could be a benefit to any cause anywhere oh, or if somebody wants to talk to me I'm at one on Twitter and I'd be happy to help if I can Thanks, Ken. We're going to turn it over to you, Kay. What do you want our audience to leave uh, thinking about? I recently distributed to the people I'm mentoring in Central and Eastern Europe through the Leaders of Tomorrow program a piece that was sent out uh, by one of our faculty members called Courageous Leadership in Times of Uncertainty. 
and it's from Diane Lloyd. And I'm just going to give you those six words, and then I have one word I want to add myself. She says that courageous leadership in times like this, you must be calm, co-creative, curious, clear, connected, and compassionate. And I think that those are, I would like to think that we were always that way, but I think it's even more important, particularly compassionate leadership, because that's what we are known for. Uh, people think of us as compassionate leaders because of the work that we do. I would also just like to piggyback on something that was said kind of throughout, the importance of stewardship. Um, I have seen the most extraordinary return on investment of time spent in stewarding donors. And I don't mean money coming in. I mean, yes, there have been some lovely gifts that have come in as a result. But people who've made calls, people who have written notes, handwritten or email, and how grateful people are because of what somebody was saying earlier is that there is this sense of isolation, anxiety. And when I reach out to you and I connect with you, then I don't feel so alone. I believe that organizations that steward well at this time, who keep in touch with their donors, not to ask them for money, but just to keep them informed, I believe that they will be stronger when they emerge from this. So I would just say courageous leadership and steward your donors. And if you want to reach me, my website is under construction, but it is www.kgrace.org. I pulled it down. We're getting a new one up. And um, I'm reachable on Gmail at ksprinklegrace, and sprinkle is spelled with E-L, not L-E. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks very much, Kay. Um, I have to tell you, Ken and I and Angela were all probably jumping out of our seats when you mentioned our very lovely colleague and friend, Diane Lloyd. Uh, yeah. She serves with me on the, on the IFE uh, Foundation Board. Uh, Ken and Angela both know her. Uh, she will be over the moon that Kay Sprinkle Grace closed the show out by quoting her. That was really mm -hmm. lovely. Thanks, Kay. Uh, well, over well, to thanks, you, Tom. Thanks to Tony Myers. Thanks to Tony Myers who sent it to us. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Thank you. Tom, what do you want people to think about or, or hear as they leave the show? Well, um, this has been a series of aha moments for me, which is, it usually is when I listen to the really um, the top people talk. But I wanted to take something that Angela said and just repeat it because uh, this was particularly um, – I it, it, she said that more than 50% of the major donors have given for 10 years or more. Now, that um, – how can we get more people to that point? Well, if you don't love them uh, in your communications, if you're instead giving them the bland, boring corporate stuff, uh, they're not going to love you back. And it takes a while for those love affairs to form. So um, I just want to say that's it's important. We are now entering a new stage. Uh, some people are calling it Donor Centricity 3.0. And it is a stage where we are going to try to get to know uh, what's in the heads of our donors, not in a, um, not in the ways that we've had. I mean, we do have insights from neuroscience and psychology and so forth, reciprocity being one of them, and uh, Angela mentioned that. But the um, the uh, the next thing is to find out what their self identity is and to work with that self-identity in order to produce better communications, more welcome communications, more interesting communications. It's not an accident that uh, a well-done donor newsletter can sometimes, in fact, often raise more money than you can mm -hmm. through appeals. Because nobody likes the appeals, but the donor newsletter at least has a chance of saying, hey, you're wonderful, and we're coming to you today again to tell you how wonderful you actually are. Um, so that's that's all I have to offer. I would uh, lead people, if they're looking for more information on this uh, donor centricity 3.0 or what's called uh, Phil Psych, which is philanthropy psychology, to go to the Institute for Sustainable Philanthropy website, 
which is based in the UK, but that's Jen Chang and uh, Adrian Sargent, and they have tons of free reports you can download there. Thank you for that, Tom. That's really helpful. We'll put those reports in the show notes as well. Angela, you get to actually close out our show. Jeez. So this is like I know a, you've been a, preparing what you've been preparing, and so it's it's uh, don't let us down. <laughs> Yeah, Vince said no pressure at all. And with this August group, I hardly deserve this honor. But I will just say, to close out, this is a defining moment. It's a defining moment in all of our lives. Uh, It it is for our society as well. And I think um, it means that in a defining moment, it's good to ground yourself in coming back to what you stand for. What are your values? What's your mission? As Kay, Tom, and Ken have said so very well, living up to the mission of your organization your own personal mission as well. And so for me, in this moment, looking for uh, creative collaborations, uh, creative partnerships is really, really important, uh, and really taking care of people. This is going to be a tough time on a lot of people. And so uh, worries about about their workloads, worries about their well-being, uh, these are all the things that are going to define us in the years to come, and eventually we will come out of it. And I will leave it at that. Thanks, Angela. And that was a great way to close out the show by reminding us to be kind to others and to be kind to ourselves. So with that, our gift of another Brain Trust philanthropy powered by Betrayo has been committed. Well, that's about it for this episode of Brain Trust Philanthropy. I hope you'll join us next month for our sixth episode of the year. We will be visiting with Ken Mayhew, Chief Executive Officer of the William Osler Health Foundation. Yes, the same Ken that was on this program. Judy Neeser, Chief Executive Officer of the Spirit of the North Healthcare Foundation, and Jessica Veach, Manager of Donor Recognition at Sinai Health. Our topic, Healthcare Philanthropy in the Age of Coronavirus. Until then, take care, stay safe, and stay sane. We look forward to talking with you soon. Brain Trust Philanthropy is powered by Vitreo and is produced by Lauren McMurray at Alchemy Communications and by me, Vincent Duckworth. Brain Trust Philanthropy is recorded in beautiful downtown Calgary, Alberta. Follow our show and engage with fellow listeners on Twitter at Powered by Vitreo. You can subscribe to Brain Trust Philanthropy on iTunes or by visiting our website at vitreogroup.ca. Wishing all of you success in your mission, peace in your lives, hope in your hearts. I'm Vincent Duckworth. <laughs>